0: Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Panadan and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. We are on week six in our journey through the Queen's University Psych 100 course. And Chapter six is all about memory. So let's get started. Memory, encoding, storage, retrieval. This should be fascinating. Memory is a single term that reflects a number of different abilities holding information briefly by working with it, your working memory, remembering episodes of one's life, episodic memory, and our general knowledge of facts of the world, semantic memory, among other types. Remembering episodes involves three processes, encoding information, learning it by perceiving it and relating it to past knowledge, storing it, maintaining it over time, and then retrieving it, accessing the information when needed. Failures can occur at any stage leading to forgetting or to having false memories. The key to improving one's memory is to improve processes of encoding and to use techniques that guarantee effective retrieval. Good encoding techniques include relating new information to what one already knows, forming mental images, and creating associations among information that needs to be remembered. The key to good retrieval is developing effective cues that will lead the rememberer back to the encoded information. Classic mnemonic systems, known since the time of the ancient Greeks and still used by some today, can greatly improve one's memory abilities. The learning objectives of this particular chapter to keep in the back of your mind is to define and note differences between the following forms of memory working memory, episodic memory, somatic memory, collective memory. Describe the three stages in the process of learning and remembering. Describe strategies that can be used to enhance the original learning or encoding of information. Describe strategies that can improve the process of retrieval, and describe why the classic mnemonic device, the method of Loki, works so well. Introduction. In 2013, Simon Reinhardt sat in front of 60 people in a room in Washington University, where he memorized an increasingly long series of digits. On the first round, a computer generated 10 random digits on the screen for 10 seconds. After the series disappeared, Simon typed them into a computer. His recollection was perfect. So perfect that for the final trial of 50 digits appearing on the screen for 50 seconds, and again, Simon got them all right. In fact, Simon would have been happy to keep going. His record in this task, called Forward Digit Span, is 240 digits. When most of us witness a performance like that of Simon Reinhardt, we think one of two things. First, maybe he's cheating somehow. Mm, No, he's not. Second, Simon must have abilities more advanced than the rest of humankind. After all, psychologists established many years ago that normal memory span for adults is about seven digits, with some of us able to recall a few more and others a few less. If you are going back in time and wanting to cross-reference chapters, chapter four, has the information about Miller and how he had the magic number seven plus or minus two. That is why the first phone numbers were limited to seven digits. Psychologists determined that many errors occurred, costing the phone company money, when the number was increased to even eight digits. But in normal testing, no one gets 50 digits correct in a row, much less 240. So does Simon Reinhardt simply have a photographic memory? He does not. Instead, Simon has taught himself simple strategies for remembering that have greatly increased his capacity for remembering virtually any type of material, digits, words, faces, and names, poetry, historical dates, and so on. Twelve years earlier, before he started training his memory abilities, he had a digit span of seven, just like most of us. Simon has been training his abilities for about 10 years as of this writing, and has risen to be the top two of memory athletes. In 2012, he came in second place in the World Memory Championship, composed of 11 tasks, held in London. He currently ranks second in the world, behind another German competitor, Johannes Mallow. In this module, we reveal what psychologists and others have learned about memory. And we also explain the general principles by which you can improve your own memory for factual material. Yes, in some ways, memory is like file drawers where you store mental information. Memory is also a series of processes. How does that information get filed to begin with? And how does it get retrieved when needed? Varieties of memory. For most of us, remembering digits rely on short-term memory or working memory, the ability to hold information in our minds for a brief time and work with it. For example, multiplying 24 by 17 without using paper would rely on working memory. Another type of memory is episodic memory, the ability to remember the episodes of our lives. If you were given the task of recalling everything you did two days ago, that would be a test of episodic memory you'd be required to mentally travel through the day in your mind and note the main events. Semantic memory is our storehouse of more or less permanent knowledge, such as the meaning of words in a language. (laughs) They give an example of the meaning of parasol and the huge collection of facts about the world. For example, there are 196 countries in the world and 206 bones in your body. I learned something new. Collective memory refers to the kind of memory that people in a group share, whether family, community, schoolmates, or citizens of a state or a country. For example, residents of small towns often strongly identify with those towns remembering the local customs and historical events in a unique way. That is the community's collective memory passes stories and recollections between neighbors and future generations, forming a memory system unto itself. Psychologists continue to debate the classification of types of memory as well as which types rely on others, but for this module we'll focus on episodic memory. Episodic memory is usually what people think of when they hear the word memory. For example, when people say that older relatives is losing her memory due to Alzheimer's disease, the type of memory loss they are referring to is the inability to recall events for episodic memory. Semantic memory is actually preserved in early Stage Alzheimer's disease. Although remembering specific events that have happened over the course of one's entire life, for example, your experience in sixth grade, can be referred to as autobiographical memory, we will focus primarily on the episodic memories of more recent events. Now we get to the three stages of the learning memory process. Psychologists distinguish between three necessary stages in the learning and memory process. Encoding, storage, and retrieval. Encoding is defined as the initial learning of information. Storage refers to maintaining information over time. Retrieval is the ability to access information when you need it. If you meet someone for the first time at a party, you need to encode her name while you associate her name with her face. Then you need to maintain the information over time. If you see her a week later, you need to recognize her face and have it serve as a cue to retrieve her name. Any successful act of remembering requires that all three stages be intact. However, two types of errors can also occur. Forgetting is one type. You see the person you met at the party and cannot recall her name. The other is misremembering, false recall, or false recognition. You see somebody who looks like her and call the person by that name false recognition of the face. Or you might see the real person recognize her face, but then call her by the name of another woman you met at a party, <laughs> miss recall of her name. Whenever forgetting or misremembering occurs, we can ask at which stage in this learning memory process was there a failure? Though it is often difficult to answer this question with precision, One reason for this inaccuracy is that the three stages are not as discrete as our description implies. Rather, all three stages depend on one another. How we encode information determines how it will be stored and what cues will be effective when we try to retrieve it. And two, the act of retrieval itself also changes the way information is subsequently remembered, usually aiding later recall of the retrieved information. The central point for now is that the three stages encoding, storage and retrieval affect one another and are inextricably bound together. So if you can think of a situation where this happened to you, you might be able to remember the terminology. Think about it. Encoding. Encoding refers to the initial experience of perceiving and learning information. Psychologists often study recall by having participants study a list of pictures or words. Encoding in these situations is fairly straightforward. However, real-life encoding is much more challenging. When you walk across campus, for example, you encounter countless sights and sounds, friends passing by, people playing frisbee music in the air. The physical and mental environments are much too rich for you to encode all the happenings around you or the internal thoughts you have in response to them. So, an important first principle of encoding is that it is selective. We attend to some events in our environment and we ignore others. The second point about encoding is that it is prolific. We are always encoding the events of our lives, attending to the world, trying to understand. Normally, this presents no problem as our days are filled with routine occurrences, so we don't need to pay attention to everything. But if something does happen that seems strange during your daily walk across campus, you see a giraffe then we pay close attention and try to understand why we are seeing what we are seeing. Right after your typical walk across campus, one without the appearance of a giraffe, you would be able to remember the events reasonably well if you were asked. Could you say whom you bumped into, what song was playing, and so on. However, someone suppose someone asks you to recall the same walk a month later, you wouldn't stand a chance. You would likely be able to recount the basics of a typical walk across campus, but not the precise details of that particular walk. Yet, if you had seen a giraffe during the walk, the event would have been fixed in your mind for a long time, probably for the rest of your life. You would tell your friends about it, and on later occasions when you saw a giraffe, you might be reminded of the day you saw one on campus. Psychologists have long pinpointed distinctiveness. Having an event stand out as quite different from a background or similar events as key to remembering events. Distinctiveness. In addition, when vivid memories are tinged with strong emotional content, they often seem to leave a permanent mark on us. Public tragedies such as terrorist attacks often create vivid memories in those who witness them. But even those of us not directly involved in such events may have vivid memories of them including memories of first hearing about them. For example, many people are able to recall their exact physical location when they first learned about the assassination or accidental death of a national figure. The term flashbulb memory was originally coined by Brown and Kulik to describe this sort of vivid memory of finding out an important piece of news. The name refers to how some memories seem to be captured in the mind like flash photograph Because of the distinctiveness and emotionality of the news, they seem to become permanently etched in the mind with exceptional clarity compared to other memories. Take a moment and think back on your own life. Is there a particular memory that seems sharper than others? A memory where you can recall unusual details like the colors of mundane things around you or the exact positions of surrounding objects? Although people have great confidence in flashbulb memories like these, the truth is our objective accuracy with them is far from perfect. That is, even though people may have great confidence in what they recall, their memories are not as accurate as they tend to imagine. Nonetheless, all other things being equal, distinctive and emotional events are well remembered. Details do not leap perfectly from the world into a person's mind. We might say that we went to a party and remembered it, But what we remembered is at best what we encoded. As noted above, the process of encoding is selected, and in complex situations, relatively a few of many possible details are noticed and encoded. The process of encoding always involves recoding, that is, taking the information from the form it is delivered to us and then converting it in a way that we can make sense of. For example, you might try to remember the colors of a rainbow using the acronym Roy G. Biff, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. The process of recoding the colors into a name can help us remember. However, recoding can also introduce errors when we accidentally add information during encoding. Then remember that new material as if it had been part of the actual experience. <laughs> Psychologists have studied many recoding strategies that can be used during study to improve retention. First, research advises that as we study, we should think of the meaning of the events, and we should try to relate new events to this information we already know. This helps us form associations that we can use to retrieve information later. Second, Imagining events also makes them more memorable. Creating vivid images out of the information, even verbal information, can greatly improve later recall. Creating imagery is part of the technique Simon Reinhardt used to remember huge numbers of digits, but we can all use images to encode information more effectively. The basic concept behind good encoding strategies is to form distinctive memories, ones that stand out. And to form links or associations among memories to help later retrieval. Using study strategies such as the ones described here is challenging, but the effort is well worth the benefits of enhanced learning and retention. Although it requires more effort, using images and associations can improve the process of recoding. We emphasized earlier that encoding is selective People cannot encode all information they are exposed to. However, recoding can add information that was not even seen or heard during the initial encoding phase. Several of the recoding processes, like forming associations between memories, can happen without our awareness. This is one reason people can sometimes remember events that did not actually happen, because during the process of recoding, details got added. One common way of inducing false memories in the laboratory employs a word list technique. Participants hear lists of 15 words like door, glass, pane, shade, ledge, sill, house, open, curtain, frame, view, breeze, sash, screen, and shutter. Later, participants are given a test in which they are shown a list of words and asked to pick out the ones they heard earlier. This second list contains some words from the first list, for example, door, pane, and frame, and some words not from the list like arm, phone, and bottle. In this example, one of the words on the test is window, which importantly does not appear in the first list, but which is related to other words in that list. When subjects were tested, they were reasonably accurate with the studied words, door, etc., recognizing them 72% of the time. However, when window was on the test, they falsely recognized it as having been on the list of the time. The same thing happened with many other lists the authors used. This phenomenon is referred to as the DRM effect. One explanation for such results is that while students listen to items in the list, the words triggered the students to think about window, even though window was never presented. In this way, people seem to encode events that are not actually part of their experience. Because humans are creative, we are always going beyond the information we are given. We automatically make associations and infer from them what is happening. But as with the word association mix up above, sometimes we make false memories from our inferences, remembering the inferences themselves as if they were actual experiences. To illustrate this, Brewer in 1977, gave people sentences to remember that were designed to elicit pragmatic inferences. Inferences, in general, refer to instances when something is not explicitly stated, but we are still able to guess the undisclosed intention. For example, if your friend told you that she didn't want to go out to eat, you may infer that she doesn't have the money to go out, or that she's too tired. With pragmatic inferences, there is usually one particular inference you're likely to make. Consider the statement Brewer gave her participants. The karate champion hit the cinder block. After hearing or seeing this sentence, participants who were given a memory test tended to remember the statement as having been, the karate champion broke the cinder block. This remembered statement is not necessarily a logical inference, i e it is perfectly reasonable that a karate champion could hit a cinder block without breaking it. Nevertheless, the pragmatic conclusion from hearing such a sentence is that the block was likely broken. The participants remembered this inference while they while hearing the sentence in place of the actual words that were in the sentence. Mm-hmm. created a visual, right? Encoding the initial registration of information is essential in the learning and memory process. Unless an event is encoded in some fashion, it will not be successfully remembered later. However, just because an event is encoded, even if it is encoded well, there's no guarantee that it will be remembered later. That's where storage comes in. Every experience we have changes our brains. That may seem like a bold, even strange claim at first, but it's true. We encode each of our experiences within the structures of the nervous system, making new impressions in the process, and each of those impressions involves changes in the brain. Psychologists and neurobiologists say that experiences leave memory traces or engrams. The two terms are synonyms. Memories have to be stored somewhere in the brain, so in order to do so, the brain biochemically alters itself and its neural tissue. Just like you might write yourself a note to remind you of something, the brain writes a memory trace, changing its own physical composition to do so. The basic idea is that events, occurrences in our environment, create engrams through a process of consolidation, the neural changes that occur after learning to create the memory trace of an experience. Although neurobiologists are concerned with exactly what neural processes change when memories are created, For psychologists, the term memory trace simply refers to the physical change in the nervous system. Whatever that may be, exactly. That represents our experience. (laughs) Memory traces or engrams are not perfectly preserved recordings of past experiences. The traces are combined with current knowledge to reconstruct what we think happened in the past. Although the concept of engram or memory trace is extremely useful, we shouldn't take the term too literally. It is important to understand that memory traces are not perfect little packets of information that lie dormant in the brain, waiting to be called forward to give an accurate report of past experience. Memory traces are not like video or audio recordings, capturing experience with great accuracy. As discussed earlier, we often have errors in our memory, which would not exist if memory traces were perfect packets of information. Thus, it is wrong to think that remembering involves simply reading out a faithful record of past experience. Rather, when we remember past events, we construct them with the aid of our memory traces, but also with our current belief of what happened. For example, if you were trying to recall for the police who started a fight at a bar, you may not have a memory trace of who pushed whom first. However, let's say you remember that one of the guys held the door open for you. When thinking back to the start of the fight, this knowledge of how one guy was friendly to you may unconsciously influence your memory of what happened in favor of the nice guy. Thus, memory is a construction of what you actually recall and what you believed happened. In a phrase, remembering is reconstructive. We reconstruct our past with the aid of memory traces, not reproductive, a perfect reproduction or recreation of the past. Psychologists refer to the time between learning and testing as the retention interval. Memories can consolidate during that time, aiding retention. However, experiences can also occur that undermine the memory. For example, think of what you had for lunch yesterday. A pretty easy task. However, if you had to recall what you had for lunch 17 days ago, you may well fail. Assuming you don't eat the same thing every day. 16 lunches you've had since the one have <laughs> created retroactive interference. Mm-hmm. Retroactive interference refers to new activities, for example, the subsequent lunches during the retention interval, i.e. the time between the lunch 17 days ago and now. That infer with retrieving the specific older memory, the lunch details from 17 days ago. But just as newer things can interfere with remembering older things, so can the opposite happen. Proactive interference is when past memories interfere with the encoding of new ones. For example, if you have ever studied a second language, oftentimes the grammar and vocabulary of your native language will pop into your head, impairing the fluency in the foreign language. Retroactive interference is one of the main causes of forgetting. In the module Eyewitness Testimony and Memory Biases, Elizabeth Loftus describes her fascinating work on eyewitness memory in which she shows how memory for an event can be changed via misinformation supplied during the retention interval. For example, if you witnessed a car crash but subsequently heard people describing it from their own perspective, this new information may interfere with or disrupt your own personal recollection of the crash. In fact, you may even come to remember the event happening exactly as others described it. This misinformation effect in eyewitness memory represents a type of retroactive interference that can occur during the retention interval. Of course, if correct information is given during the retention interval, the witness's memory will usually be improved. Although the interference may arise between the occurrence of an event and the attempt to recall it, the effect itself will, is always expressed when we retrieve memories, the topic to which we will turn next. Yes, how are we going to retrieve all this information? Endel Tolving argued that the key process in memory is retrieval. Why should retrieval be given more prominence than encoding or storage? For one thing, if information were encoded and stored but could not be retrieved, it would be useless. As discussed previously in this model, we encode and store thousands of events, conversations, sites, and sounds every day, creating memory traces. However, we later access only a tiny portion of what we've taken in. Most of our memories will never be used in the sense of being brought back to mind consciously. This fact seems so obvious that we rarely reflect on it. All those events that happened to you in the fourth grade that seemed so important then. (laughs) Now, many years later, you would struggle to remember even a few. You may wonder if the traces of those memories still exist in some latent form. Unfortunately, with currently available methods, it is impossible to know Psychologists distinguish information that is available in memory from that which is accessible. Available information is information that is stored in memory, but precisely how much and what types are stored cannot be known. That is, all we can know is what information we can retrieve. Accessible information. The assumption is that accessible information represents only a tiny slice of the information available in our brains. Most of us have had the experience of trying to remember some fact or event, giving up, and then all of a sudden, it comes to us at a later time, even after we've stopped trying to remember it. Similarly, we all know the experience of failing to recall a fact, but then if we're given several choices, as in multiple choice tests, we are easily able to recognize it. What factors determine what information can be retrieved from memory? One critical factor is the type of hints or cues in the environment. You may hear a song on the radio that suddenly evokes memories of an earlier time in your life, even if you were not trying to remember it when the song came on. Nevertheless, the song is closely associated with that time, so it brings the experience to mind. Okay, quick personal note here. Every time I hear Dancing Queen, I am on rollerblades. (laughs) Thank you, Abba. Anyways, all right, moving on. The general principle that underlies the effectiveness of retrieval cues is the encoding specificity principle. When people encode information, they do so in specific ways. For example, take the song on the radio. Perhaps you heard it while you were at a terrific party, having a great philosophical conversation with a friend. Thus, the song became part of the whole complex experience. Years later, even though you haven't thought about the party in ages, when you hear the song on the radio, the whole experience rushes back to you. In general, the encoding specificity principle states that to the extent a retrieval cue, the song, matches or overlaps the memory trace of an experience, the party, conversation, it will be effective in evoking the memory. A classic experiment on the encoding specificity principle had participants memorize a set of words in a unique setting. Later, the participants were tested on the word sets, either in the same location they learned the words or a different one. As a result of encoding specificity, the students who took the test in the same place they learned the words were actually able to recall more words than the students who took the tests in a new setting fascinating. We can't know entirely of what is in our memory, but only portion that we can actually retrieve. Something that cannot be retrieved now and which is simply gone from memory may, with different cues applied, re-emerge, as in songs. And they're they're actually doing uh, music memory um, therapy with people with dementia. It's quite fascinating. Moving on. One caution with this principle though, is that for the cue to work, it can't match too many other experiences. Consider a lab experiment. Suppose you study 100 items, 99 are words and one is a picture of a penguin, item 50 in the list. Afterwards, the cue recall the picture would evoke penguin perfectly. No one would miss it. However, the word penguin, replaced in the same spot among the other 99 words Its memorability would be exceptionally worse. This outcome shows the power of distinctiveness that we discussed in the section on encoding. One picture is perfectly recalled from among 99 words because it stands out. Now consider what would happen if the experiment were repeated, but there were 25 pictures distributed with a 100 item list. Although the picture of the penguin would still be there, the probability that the cue recall the picture, would be useful for the penguin, would drop correspondingly. Watkins referred to this outcome as demonstrating the cue overload principle. That is, to be effective, a retrieval cue cannot be overloaded with too many memories. For the cue, recall the picture, to be effective, it should only match one item in the target set, as in the one picture, 99 word case. To sum up how memory cues function, for a retrieval cue to be effective, a match must exist between the cue and the desired target memory. Furthermore, to produce the best retrieval, the cue target relationship should be distinctive. Next, we will see how the encoding specificity principle can work in practice. Psychologists measure memory performance by using production tests involving recall or recognition tests involving the selection of correct from incorrect information, for example, a multiple choice test. And for example, with our list of 100 words, one group of people might be asked to recall the list in any order, a free recall test, while a different group might be asked to circle the 100 studied words out of a mix with another 100 unstudied words, a recognition test. In this situation, the recognition test would like to produce better performance from participants than the recall test. We usually think of recognition tests as being quite easy because the cue for retrieval is a copy of the actual event that was presented for study. After all, what could be a better cue than the exact target, memory, the person is trying to access? In most cases, this line of reasoning is true. Nevertheless, recognition tests do not provide perfect indexes of what is stored in memory. That is, you can fail to recognize a target staring you right in the face, yet be able to recall it later with a different set of cues. For example, suppose you had the task of recognizing the surnames of famous authors. At first, you might think that being given the actual last name would always be the best cues. However, research has shown that this is not necessarily to be true. When given names such as Tolstoy, Shaw, Shakespeare, and Lee, subjects might well say that Tolstoy and Shakespeare are famous authors, whereas Shaw and Lee are not. But when given acute recall tests using first names, people often recall items that they had failed to recognize before. For example, in this instance, a cue like George Bernard, fill in the blank, Shaw, often leads to a recall of Shaw. Even though people initially fail to recognize Shaw as a famous author name. Yet, when given the cue William, people may not come up with Shakespeare because William is a common name that matches many people. The cue overload principle at work. This strange fact that recall can sometimes lead to better performance than recognition can be explained by the encoding specificity principle. As a cue, George Bernard, fill in the blank, matches the way the famous writer is stored in memory better than does his surname Shaw does even though it is the target further the match is quite distinctive with George Bernard fill in the blank but the cue William fill in the blank is much more overloaded prince william william yeats william faulkner will i am <laughs> and so on the phenomenon we have been describing is called the recognition failure of recallable words, which highlights the point that a cue will be most effective depending on how the information has been encoded. The Point is, the cues that work best to evoke a retrieval are those that recreate the event or name to be remembered, whereas sometimes even the target itself, such as Shaw in the above example, is not the best cue. Which cue will be most effective depends on how the information has been encoded. Whenever we think about our past, we engage in the act of retrieval. We usually think that retrieval is an objective act because we tend to imagine that retrieving a memory is like pulling a book from a shelf. And after that, we are done with it. We return the book to the shelf, just as it was. However, research shows this assumption to be false. Far from being a static repository of data, the memory is constantly changing. In fact, every time we retrieve a memory, it is altered. For example, the act of retrieval itself of a fact, concept, or event makes the retrieved memory much more likely to be retrieved again, a phenomenon called the testing effect or the retrieval practice effect. However, retrieving some information can actually cause us to forget other information related to it, a phenomenon called retrieval-induced forgetting. Thus, the act of retrieval can be a double-edged sword strengthening the memory just retrieved, usually by a large amount, but harming related information, though this effect is often relatively small. As discussed earlier, retrieval of distanced memories is reconstructive. We weave the concrete bits and pieces of events in with assumptions and preferences to form a coherent story. For example, if during your 10th birthday, your dog got into your cake before you did, you would likely tell that story for years afterwards. Say that in later years, you misremembered where the dog actually found the cake, but repeated that error over and over during subsequent retelling of the story. Over time, that inaccuracy would become a basic fact of the event in your mind. Just as retrieval practice, repetition, enhances accurate memories, so will it strengthen errors or false memories. Sometimes memories can even be manufactured just from hearing a vivid story. Consider the following episode, recounted by Jean Piaget, the famous development psychologist from his childhood. One of my first memories would date, if it were true, from my second year. I could still see most clearly the following scene in which I believed I was about 15. I was sitting in my pram when a man tried to kidnap me. I was held in by the strap fastened around me while my nurse bravely tried to stand between me and the thief. She received various scratches and I could still vaguely see those on her face. When I was about 15, my parents received a letter from my former nurse saying that she had been converted to the Salvation Army. She wanted to confess her full, her past faults and in particular to return the watch she had been given as a reward on this occasion. She had made up the whole story, faking scratches. I therefore must have heard as a child this story, which my parents believed and projected it into the past in the form of a visual memory. Many real memories are doubtless of the same order. Isn't that fascinating? So from the age of two until he was 15, he believed this was true fact. Piaget's vivid account represents a case of pure, reconstructive memory. He heard the tale told repeatedly and doubtlessly told it, and thought about it himself. The repeated telling cemented the events as though they had really happened, just as we are all open to the possibilities of having many real memories of the same order. The fact that one can remember precise details, the location, the scratches, does not necessarily indicate that the memory is true point that has been confirmed in laboratory studies, too. Wowzer, that is fascinating. Putting it all together, improving your memory. A central theme of this module has been the importance of encoding and retrieval processes and their interactions. To recap, to improve learning and memory, we need to encode information in conjunction with excellent cues that will bring back the remembered events when we need them. But how do we do this? Keep in mind the two critical principles we have discussed to maximize retrieval. We should construct meaningful cues that remind us of the original experience. And those cues should be distinctive and not associated with other memories. These two conditions are critical in maximizing cue effectiveness. So how can these principles be adapted for use in many situations? Let's go back to how we started the module with Simon Reinhardt's ability to memorize huge numbers of digits. Although it was not obvious, he applied the same general memory principles, but in more deliberate ways. In fact, all mnemonic devices or memory aids, tricks, rely on these fundamental principles. In a typical case, the person learns a set of cues and then applies these cues to learn and remember information. Consider the set of 20 items below That are easy to learn and remember. So I will read the list one through twenty. One gun. Two shoe. Three tree. Four door. Five knives. Six sticks. Seven oven. Eight plate. Nine wine. Ten hen. Eleven is penny one hot dog bun. Twelve is penny two airplane glue. Thirteen is penny three bumblebee. 14 is penny 4, grocery store. 15 is penny 5, beek, beehive. 16 is penny 6, magic tricks. 17 is penny 7, go to heaven. 18 is penny 8, golden gate. 19 is penny 9, ball of twine. And 20 is penny 10, ballpoint pen. Oh, those all rhymed, right? It would probably take you less than 10 minutes to learn this list and practice recalling it several times. Remember to use retrieval practice. If you were to do so, you would have a set of peg words on which you could hang memories. In fact, this mnemonic device is called the peg word technique. If you then needed to remember some discrete item, say a grocery list or points you wanted to make in a speech, this method will let you do so in a very precise yet flexible way. Suppose you had to remember bread, peanut butter, bananas, lettuce, and so on. The way to use the method is to form a vivid image of what you want to remember and imagine it interacting with your peg words, as many as you need. For example, for these items, you might imagine a large gun, the first peg word, shooting a loaf of bread, then a jar of peanut butter inside a shoe, then large bunches of bananas hanging from a tree, then a door slamming on your head of lettuce with leaves flying everywhere. The idea is to provide good distinctive cues, the weirder, the better, for the information for you need to remember while you are learning it. If you do this, then retrieving it later is relatively easy. You know your cues perfectly. One is gun, etc. So you simply go through your cue word list and look into your mind's eye at the image stored there, bread in this case. This PEG word method may sound strange at first, but it works quite well, even with little training. One word of warning though, is that the items to be remembered need to be presented relatively slowly at first, until you have practice associating each with its Q word. People get faster with time. Another interesting aspect of this technique is that it's just as easy to recall the items in backward orders as forwards. This is because the peg words provide direct access to the memorized items, regardless of order. How did Simon Reinhardt remember those digits? Essentially, he had a much more complex system based on these same principles. In his case, he uses memory palaces, elaborate scenes with discrete places, combined with huge sets of images for digits. For example, imagine mentally walking through the home where you grew up and identifying as many distinct areas and objects as possible. Simon has hundreds of such memory places that he uses. Next, for remembering digits, he has memorized a set of 10,000 images. Every four-digit number for him immediately brings forth a mental image. So, for example, 6187 might recall Michael Jackson. When Simon hears all the numbers coming at him, he places an image for every four digits into locations in his memory palace. He can do this at an incredibly rapid rate, faster than four digits per four seconds, when they are flashed visually, as in the demonstration at the beginning of the module. As noted, his record is 240 digits, recalled in exact order. Simon also holds the world record in an event called Speed Cards, which involves memorizing the precise order of a shuffle deck of cards. Simon was able to do this in 21.19 seconds. Again, he uses his memory palaces and he encodes groups of cards as single images. (laughs) (laughs) That is fascinating. That's moonwalking with Einstein stuff, right? (laughs) Uh, that's a book. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Many books exist on how to improve memory using mnemonic devices, but all involve forming distinctive encoding operations and then having an infallible set of memory cues. We should add that to develop and use these memory systems beyond the basic peg system outlined above takes a great amount of time and concentration. The World Memory Championships are held every year and the records keep improving. However, for most common purposes, just keep in mind that to remember well, you need to encode information in a distinctive way and have good cues for retrieval. You can adapt a system that will meet most any purpose. Wowzer, wasn't that fascinating? We can all build our memories so much stronger for retrieval. And and that's part of why I did this video. It really helps me remember the course material. So I'm hoping it helps you as well. If you're enjoying the show, share it with someone you know, and remember to hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss the next chapter. And you deserve to live a more inspired life.